0: Hi, guys. We wanted to take a moment to let you know that IntroVet's podcast has got merchandise. Woohoo. We are so excited about this. Mm-hmm. We've got four shirts to choose from, a logo shirt, some great catchphrase shirts, and also by popular demand, the Feline Chili Pepper Rating System artwork by Stacy Scripture. We've got that on a shirt. We've also got the Chili Pepper artwork and posters and stickers, and we're really excited about it
1: to order the merchandise, go to our website. It's introvets.com. Click on the merchandise link at the top of the page. And we've partnered with Carrie at Comice Oh My to be able to offer this. Deadline to order is June 16th. So don't forget. I'm Lauren and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ and I'm a veterinary technician.
0: And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high functioning anxiety. Welcome everybody to IntroVets Podcast.
1: Hello. Today
0: we have a special guest for you. Dr. Kevin Stoltz is currently a professor in the Department of Counselor Education at the University of North Alabama. Dr. Stoltz graduated from Mercer University with a bachelor's degree in human services. He went on to complete both a master's degree in community counseling and a PhD in counseling at Georgia State University. He has a special interest in career counseling, including career assessments, career transition, and the integration of career and mental health counseling. Dr. Stoltz has published in national and international journals regarding career techniques used in counselor supervision, career transition, applications of motivational interviewing in career counseling, and Adlerian constructs used in career counseling. He recently co-edited a book. The book is called A Comprehensive Guide to Career Assessment, 7th Edition. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Stoltz. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we wanted you to come on the podcast because I think career counseling in general is a topic that the veterinary community needs to know more about. Mm
1: -hmm, Definitely. So, Dr. Stoltz, how did you develop a special interest in career counseling and what led you to the field?
2: Well, that's a long story, but <laughs> Here I will keep it. it brief. Okay. <laughs> I will keep it brief. My interest developed early on. My mother worked for the Department of Labor in the state of Missouri. And so I saw her working as a, a job core person trying to help low socioeconomic status people uh, find jobs and get employment. And so I heard a lot of that narrative when I was a young boy. And as I grew, um, there was pressure, as there usually is from parents, to do certain things. And my mother wanted an actor, and my dad wanted a lawyer, and so uh, I became a roofer.
1: <laughs> nice.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it, and that's one of the the hard things about career work and working in career counseling is the pressures. It, it, it parents often want success for their children, Mm -hmm. and they don't listen to their children or don't know how to help their children be successful. What I experienced in my life, I I worked as a roofing contractor and applicator for a long time. And then I worked for a roofing manufacturer and uh, did roofing inspections and managed a seven-state region and then an 11-state region. And I lived in several different states in the United States and traveled within the United States and some international travel. And eventually, wow. I yeah, yeah it, was, it was fun when I was young. I yeah. don't care much for it anymore. <laughs> I, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. But eventually, uh, I grew tired of the travel, and I grew tired of the, the, the technical work. It, it seemed very repetitive, and I'm not a person that likes repetitive tasks. I grew bored, and I grew depressed, and uh, I went to see a counselor, and I learned about career counseling through my job, actually. They sent me to the Centers for Creative Leadership, and there's two offices, one in Greensboro, North Carolina, and one in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Of course, I chose the Colorado Springs (laughs) (laughs) to go there. (laughs) And when I went there, I was uh, given a battery of tests, very typical career counseling tests, And I sat with a career counselor, a a clinical psychologist, and went through all of the results of these tests and all of this kind of information. And I was 35 years old, and I talked about some things that I'd been through in my life and that sort of thing. And the woman uh, looked at me and she said, you know, you seem to be at a point in your life where you are blossoming, where you are are starting to make a, a change in your life. And I heard that, and I looked at her and I said, you know, I'd really like to do what you do. I would like to work with people and helping them start to enjoy work and be satisfied with work. Because what it really boiled down to was I was no longer satisfied with the, the work that I was doing. I, I wasn't engaged and interested, and it became more of a labor and a chore than it was something that was interesting. Yeah, and so, two weeks later, I was at Mercer University finishing my undergraduate degree. All right. Two weeks later, so <laughs> it was a pivotal moment, a, a real change in uh, my life, and um, that's how I got involved in counseling and specifically career counseling because I put I put all those experiences together, and when I learned about career counseling specifically, um, it made sense to me. And when I when I studied uh, the, the theories, and when I look at all of the the data that we have on career counseling, it just really fit well for my experience.
0: So many of the things that you just said jump out for me, but the one th- that I'll say first is you said you were 35 years old? Yes. Yeah, I'll be 40 this year. A lot of the people that I know in the veterinary field, and the veterinary technician field, are younger than 35 and are like, I'm too old to make a change. Mm. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. that, you're, you know, you're young. I know, like, this is a hard career that we've chosen. It kind of wears you down. So you don't feel young anymore, I don't think, by 35. <laughs> <No>. But like,
1: you <laughs> know, um, not at all.
0: Sure. I don't know any 35 year old veterinary professionals that are like, I feel young. I think we're all like, whoa, (laughs) I don't know, feeling kind of rough. (laughs) But, um, but one of the things that I think is so important is this idea that there's not an age limit to changing or expanding or transitioning what you do with your career.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no age limit. And in, in, uh, 10 years ago, the National Career Development Association had a special initiative for people that were retiring from careers, and they they um, went to the AARP and really tried to develop a new view for people retiring, that you're no longer retiring, you're just going into another career. And, and they developed a, a program through AARP for people that were retiring from one job and then moving into a new career and and so i mean it goes across the spectrum of life it doesn't stop anywhere and they're encouraging people to to stay active and we know that staying active staying engaged is the best for your mental health and it doesn't necessarily be uh, have to be with a traditional type of work, and, and I'm thinking across the lifespan because retired people necessarily don't want to work, but they volunteer mm-hmm. or they do other things. But being engaged socially and with systems and having a forward focus, a, an idea that I'm creating and contributing—that's probably the biggest, the biggest uh, variable right there—is continuing to contribute is the best and the strongest indicator of maintaining mental health.
0: So if you're getting to a point in your career where you are feeling really worn down, you feel like I'm not energized by this, what I do doesn't make a difference on the day-to-day, that can lead to some decreases in mental health, it sounds like.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely when job satisfaction starts to drop, it's always a difficult thing to figure out. Is it the job that's creating the drop in satisfaction? Or are there other social variables, a divorce or life events that are creating the drop in work satisfaction? So it it's always a, a hard to figure out wh- which one is causing or what combination is causing the drop. But Probably the plague of our times is work often becomes focused on the bureaucracy or the system and no longer focuses on the primary task that the individual is drawn to in their interest. Yeah. I I did want to go back and talk a little bit about the age and changing jobs. Yeah. There was a a man from the 1950s, a very famous researcher, his name is Donald Super. He put together a theory of a lifespan theory of career development, and he tracked it, tracked career development over the lifespan. And he followed 100 people from the 1950s through the 1980s. and, And this is how he developed his rainbow theory of career. One of the the stages that he placed and, and the phenomena that he saw in career development was that people at the age, between the ages of 35 and 40, and that's variable, it can be as young as 30 or 28, up to 45 or 50, but in that time frame, that middle age, if you will, approaching middle age time frame, that people would pause and they would look forward and look backward. And they would say to themselves, is what I'm doing now, is the life I'm living now conducive? Can I do this for the next 20 years, 30 years? And the answer to that question is what creates a lot of dissonance for people in their career is, do I, am I still interested? Am I still engaged? Am I still contributing? Or do I need to think about changing careers? So it's a very natural, normal phenomenon that we've known about for 50 or 70 years. Uh, But it doesn't often get talked about. There's really a history to careers. And if you go back in time, obviously, to before cities were the primary areas where people worked, the farms and all were lifelong employment. When, yeah. when you worked in in rural areas, lifelong employment was farms or blacksmithing or these kinds of things. And as we began to concentrate into cities, we still brought those values of lifelong employment. And it's only been a phenomenon in the last 75 to 100 years that we realized that people might change jobs more often and and change jobs actually More continually throughout the lifespan. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And uh, one of the the questions that uh, I saw that you all had for me was, Mm -hmm. how often do people change jobs? And so, believe it or not, there's people that track these statistics. It's just amazing to me what people will study. (laughs) But but there's a news release. Uh, it was released August the 31st, 2021. it says that individuals born in the latter years of the baby boom. So this is 1957 to 1964. Mm-hmm. They have an average of 12.4 jobs from age 18 to 54. So 12.4 jobs. Now half of those jobs, half happened before age 24. Okay. Which is typical. People have jobs where they work in restaurants. Mm-hmm. My my first job, real job, was I worked at a gas station pumping gas for a number of years and those kinds of things. And so those jobs, you know, we, we look to, that's our training. Yeah. That's our training to learn how to be responsible, learn how to have a little bit of income, learn how to begin to understand work. And so we cycled through a lot of jobs at that time. There is job change that happens over the latter half of life or the latter parts of life after age 24. And we don't really talk much about that in our culture. We think that people, to be a stable, sane person, you know, to be a responsible person, you're supposed to grind it out for 45 or 50 years. But that's not the reality of it.
0: I think that's a common sentiment that I see, especially on the veterinarian side, you know, like you worked so hard to do this, you uh sacrificed so much, and you beat out other people who really wanted to do this, right? Like there's only so many veterinary schools and there's only so many spots and you took a spot from someone who would have done this longer or been more um what's the word? Appreciative. Uh, appreciative. Yeah. Exactly, JJ, <laughs> yes like you're not appreciative enough if you want to transition and do like a non-clinical work would be the the classic thing. But from what you're saying, it sounds like it's actually common to to not stay doing the exact same thing for your whole career.
2: Absolutely. A lot of times these jobs are in the same sort of line of profession, so someone might uh move from one aspect of a company to another aspect of a company or those kinds of things but we're seeing more and more where people are switching entire careers mm-hmm. they're they're going into new fields and and that is a phenomenon that came across started to really get popular in the 1990s now there's a there's two researchers that have been looking at that phenomenon uh, since the 1970s. The the first guy's name was Hall, and he wrote a book called The Protean Career. And his concept was he began to see that organizations no longer provided the social contract that we had in the 1960s and 70s. A, a lot of people don't know, but in the 1970s was the peak Uh, manufacturing ability of the United States. Everybody thinks it was World War II, but actually it was the 1970s. We had more manufacturing in the United States in the 1970s than ever in history. Wow! And Hmm. after that time, we started to see the mass exodus of people starting to take manufacturing to other countries. And that's what caused us to begin to think about changing careers. I happen to live in Pittsburgh. In 1983, and Pittsburgh used to be a steel town,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it was very, very sad to see all the demise of the of the steel industry. And people had to be retraining. In the 1980s, they had to go back and retrain to engage in different jobs and to learn new skills and new jobs and those kinds of things. So this was Hall's ideas. Is, is he began to see all these changes and what he said? If you if you uh, have studied. Greek mythology, Proteus, the Greek god Proteus, He, his skill, you know, all the gods had a skill, so his skill was to be able to change shape to avoid capture. That was the storyline behind him, that he could change shape to avoid capture. And so Hall used Protean, Proteus, as the name for his Protean career concept, meaning that people had to be constantly changing able to transform in order to not be unemployed.
0: Stay flexible.
2: Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And at that time, we also saw as industry began to move heavy industry outside the United States, HR began to drop human resources training and pathways, corporate pathways for becoming higher level In the corporation began to erode, and there was less focus and training on corporate pathways because corporations were moving a lot of their manufacturing and those things across or outside the United States. And so that became less of a focus. So people had no way to train unless they started to go back to school.
0: In both of those scenarios, it, it sounds kind of like they're looking at a job change from more of a practical viewpoint of, um, we need some other thing to do, so we're going to go back to school and learn additional skills.
2: Mainly, it's survival. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have to work. We have an economy that is a free open market labor economy, and and people have to work in order to make money and pay their bills and, and collect resources and participate in the economy.
0: Has anyone looked at specifically career changes, not so much for desperation or lack of availability of any job at all, but more for personal fulfillment? Or is that less common?
2: I wouldn't say it's less common. I think, if anything, it's more common. And the reason I say that, as, as we learn that we can change jobs, it becomes socially acceptable. You're no longer the rat or the guy, you know, the the person that doesn't really work a steady job and those kinds of things. Yeah. As that becomes more, more normed and becomes a way of getting more resources, access to more resources, uh, when people leave jobs, generally they're leaving for opportunity for more to have a higher salary so that they can collect more resources. I mean, that's really a lot of our focus. But also, there's this concept that it's okay to change jobs, and you can change jobs and professions for other reasons, and that is probably more the norm today than it was in the 1980s. In the 1980s, it was necessity, as you say, but that has become the norm now, and we are actually in a in a a, a sort of a job market that people are changing. That career is no longer the top sort of driver for folks, they're they're able to work in many have a have a sort of a selection across many different types of careers and works. A lot of people piece work together.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They take three or four temporary jobs, or it might be like a gig, yeah, a gig style job or jobs, and they prioritize other things in their life. Family, uh, some kinds of um, volunteer types of work, other types of experiences; those become the priority, and work is really just a way to, again to gain access to resources. So it's an interesting phenomena, and people do uh, study these different types of. There's there's different conceptualizations for them. Uh, a Fella, I'm trying to think of what university he's at. His last name is Duffy Ryan Duffy. He he looks at career calling, this concept of career calling, meaning that there's a sort of an internal drive for a specific type of career or a specific type of work. And that changes over the life. You know, a lot of career is based on values, a priority of values. And you've heard me use the word resources and economy a couple of times. And and those are often primary values when people are young. They want to have access to resources. You like a lot of resources when you're young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. As you get older, I you know, maybe it's because we already have all the crap that that people want that, that we wanted when we were young. But as we get older, our values tend to reorganize and other things become important to us. And as our values change, values is tied very directly to work. It's one of the primary assessments that we use in assessing people for work is what, what values does do people uh, have? What do they value the most? And we tend to use values as one aspect to help people make career selections. There are others, interests and aptitudes, but values is a major construct that we assess to help people begin to decide on what it is that they value and what they need from work. And that's that's one of the things that's really a very interesting discussion is what it what is it that people get out of work, what do they need from work, and what do they lose when their work or when their values change? What is it that they're not getting from their work? Hmm. There's some really interesting resources available to people I'm pulling up right now. Okay. This is on the ONET. Um if you just type in ONET into the internet, it'll take you to this and and they list all types of variables, but I'm looking at uh, veterinarian right now. Three of the top work values, the three top-sided work values for veterinarians is achievement, independence, and recognition. and they define what those mean. and so that's you know that's very interesting. and if you think about yourselves as a veterinarian, are you getting achievement now achievement is uh it's results oriented it allows people to use their strongest abilities it gives them a feeling of accomplishment and I would imagine when you've got critters that that die, you may not get much achievement. you get achievement when you get positive results, and maybe you don't get as much achievement feeling when you lose an animal so that might be uh something to kind of think about and and begin to understand and how much independence do you have i think of (laughs)
1: sorry
0: (laughs) i have high independence now but but that's not been true in the past
2: (laughs) yeah Yeah. i mean the and i'm thinking of veterinarians that i have known and they usually own an office Mm -hmm. a, a practice And so they're tied to that practice. And you want to say, oh, that's really independent. But when you're on call 24 hours a day, you have emergency services, you have to make sure the phone and the utilities and everything and the pets are fed and and, uh, the the patients are fed and all that. You don't always really experience that as independence.
0: The ability to treat patients how we want to treat them, (laughs) you know
1: you
0: select treatment selection uh and not being dictated
1: well you can even back up and talk about achievement i mean how many times have you heard you're not a real doctor or you know in my case i go into an exam room and i get asked like well what are you going to you going to go ahead and go go finish and go to go to vet school or something i'm like no i chose the career of being a vet tech yeah that can be a little non rewarding in that area but yeah independence too that's it's not there
0: <laughs> this is so interesting that's so interesting
2: I, i'm looking up vet tech right now okay. cuz sometimes well sometimes the the values change yeah and the the work values that they have for vet techs which is different than veterinarians is relationships support and working conditions so that independence <laughs> factor is not necessarily a a primary rated value for that group so it it's really fascinating the research and the resources that are available that people don't know about. Yeah. Because you can I mean to see the subtle differences between a vet tech and a veterinarian and then they also have animal care workers, they have let's see what's this other uh assistance veterinary assistance and laboratory animal caretakers. Mm-hmm. So and they all have slightly different variations in values and work interests and aptitudes. So it's kind of fascinating uh, if, if you get interested in all that sort of thing, the amount of information that you can actually find uh, on the descriptions of uh, and the, uh, what the people do in those specific jobs. There are these tools available that can help you begin to explore yourself and understand what motivates you. What interests you and what you value in life, and what skills you possess. And maybe there are ways to use those values, skills, and interests in different ways than what you've ever thought before. And that's what exploring the world of work does. That's why we have 1,100 different job titles listed so that you can plug in some values or some interests and search all these different job titles things that you've never thought about before and then you can read detailed information on the tasks what they do what's the work environment like what's the training like and it might take you in a completely different direction than what you've really conceptualized about yourself that's one of the the beautiful parts about working with a counselor is the idea of self concept self concept is an integral part of career counseling. How does the person see themselves? Mm-hmm. And is that limiting the individual? Generally, our self-concept limits us. It doesn't help us grow. Huh. It limits us. And the more difficulty that we're experiencing, if we're depressed, if we're anxiety, if we have anxiety, if we are in a, in a, a sort of a, a bad space psychologically, our self-concept is going to limit us a lot there's a, a theory called career construction theory where we the belief is that we sort of construct ourselves based on our self-concept and our experiences. And one of the parts of the theory that really reinforces this conversation that we're talking about right now is when you enter a job, you have experiences and you possess a occupational image of what you're supposed to be doing. We all do this. When we think about a job, we We create and possess an occupational image of what that job entails. Its prestige level, what the people like, what the people do on a daily basis, and that's usually really bad information <laughs> because because we <laughs> like don't get in- that information from professionals,
0: <laughs> like incorrect, you mean.
2: Yes. We get that information from television. We get that information from the radio. We get it from media. We get it from advertising. So we never really have a good understanding of the occupation, but we have this biased image of what it is. Mm. And then if we go to that occupation and we start to work in that occupation, we become challenged. We have challenges presented to us. And the more accurate our information, our bias, the more accurate it is with the actual occupation, the better we are. It's when we start to, and, and you're always going to have some conflict, and if you have mild and moderate conflict, that actually helps your self-concept change, and you accept those parts of the occupation and the experience and what it's like to be that person. It it molds or changes your occupational image and your self concept to be more accurate. It's when there is high conflict that's when you start to think about leaving jobs and you start to have problems associated with career satisfaction and career adjustment. And so I would invite people this is why the uh, a, this is what a counselor can really do for you I would invite people to think about that and the counselor can help you begin to figure out what is the high conflict where am I conflicting in in these areas what is it that's creating the conflict because the conflict is not to be resolved it is a symptom of something it's a symptom, and the symptom is that there's not a good, in your words, and the words of the career counsellor, there's not a good match between the the image and the work environment and the work tasks, and that's what we're really looking for is a good match. Now, to say you can assess that from a test, no, you know, a test can give you some really good information, but you've got to. You know, it's kind of like ordering clothes online. You know, you got to try them on and then you get them home and it's like, oh, crap, I got to send these back. <laughs> I mean, I hate that, you know, what <laughs> but 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 you if you get up and go to the store and try them on or if you send them back, that's fine. It's when you keep the clothes and you never wear them. That's when it's that's when you get frustrated. Sure. And so I, I guess what I'm telling our listeners, your listeners is. You know, it's okay to test. It's okay to shop. It's okay to kind of go out there and look and explore. That's what you want to be doing. You don't want to just buy the damn clothes and throw them in the closet and never wear them. And that's the dissatisfaction that people experience in careers. Like I can't do anything else. It's too much time. It's too much effort. It's too much something, and I'm just not willing to change.
0: Yeah, you feel trapped when that
1: happens. Mm
2: -hmm. Overwhelmed and trapped, Mm -hmm. and then and then that starts a, a syndrome. And as people start to syndrome down into that feeling of being trapped, you start to get depressed. And if you get depressed, then that starts in and of itself making you less motivated, becoming more irritable. And it syndromes down to where you just give up.
0: Gosh, that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's very important <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's very close to home for me. Same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah
2: same. And that's why engagement is so important. As as hard as it is for depressed people to be engaged, the engagement, the exploration, the the creation of hope, faith that I can change, hope that there's something out there, I expect the world to be better, I can find a better world. All of the, those three variables are some of the primary variables in, uh, in both mental health counseling, but they also are in career counseling to help people begin to have a forward focus again instead of being mired in a swamp that just pulls them further and further into the
0: swamp. Our listeners might be a little bit surprised to know that the mental health counseling field sort of grew out of career counseling. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of career counseling?
2: In the United States, the sort of the central facts take us to Boston. And there was a fellow by the name of Frank Parsons. He's credited with creating the counseling profession. What he was trying to do at the turn of the century, he noted that people were moving to the cities from the farms. And so he started uh, to try to help people find employment, to find work in the cities. And he developed a model, uh, a a three-construct model. And the model is very simple, and in fact, it's still used today. All of our testing and our assessment and everything is really based on this Parsonian model. Wow! And the first part of the model is for the person to begin to learn about themselves. So the persons need to learn about themselves. And that really is about what it is that you're good at. What do you, what do you have special abilities to do? What are you interested in? What it is that you like to do? And what are your work values? what What do you value in life? And so you can begin to see that those those first three things of knowing yourself become a very important part of his model. And we still use all that today. And it's really sort of the primary way that we tend to work with people today in career counseling. The second part of the model is understanding how you would take yourself and plug into work. And so you have to understand what work is and that's learning about the world of work. And then the third part is when you understand yourself, you understand what the needs are, then you make a logical match between the two. Now, you've got to remember that was founded in the early 1900s in empiricism, the idea that we could statistically match people based on their aptitudes and their interests and their values and match them with specific jobs. Now, we understand that that's not really possible to any great, great degree, but we do know. From years of research with looking at interest, values, and skills, that when there is more alignment with interest, values, and skills, there is more satisfaction. And people stay in those jobs longer. They tend to invest more in those jobs and they tend to derive greater satisfaction from their work. So that's sort of where we began. When Parsons did this, it was all oral, there was no testing, there wasn't much testing or assessment. World War I and World War II created a need for assessment because you had large groups of people entering the military and you needed to assign people to work. So how do you assign thousands and thousands and thousands of people to work in a very brief time? You assess their interests and their abilities. So the ASVAB was created. The ASVAB is a, is a test now that people take in high school and it helps them uh kind of understand what their skills are, what their interests are, what their values are and that's often still used in the military but the ASVAB was developed it was called the Army Alpha and the Army Beta test back in the 1920s in between the two wars it was it was started to be created and worked on there was a fellow by the name of uh Stanley Strong who created the Strong Interest Inventory and He too was sort of taking the technology from the military and applying it to business and industry and saw a way to to assess people that were looking for jobs in business and industry and began to apply that same kind of idea. And so the strong interest inventory was created in the 1920s and is still used today. It's been revised several times, but it is still used today. And it's one of the, the premier career test that that gets used. After World War II, universities began to get very engaged in helping people select careers at university. And of course, in the late 1950s with the Sputnik satellite and all that sort of thing, um, during the Cold War, the United States got very focused on career guidance in elementary school because we were We sort of saw ourselves uh, as deficit in technology, engineering, and those kinds of fields, mathematics. As that began to grow, uh, we saw colleges, universities, and elementary schools, and and schools start to really focus on career development. And then uh, as that became sort of part of the institution, we also saw those services start to be used outside of school. For private use, and and that's how career counseling practice, as separate from mental health, began to emerge. Um, there's always been sort of a a rub between mental health and career counseling. Career counseling is sort of looked at as not really as clinical as mental health counseling. Uh, But I always see the two as integrated because, as I said, when we first started our discussion today, it's very difficult to decipher whether someone is having mental health issues that are affecting work or whether work is affecting the mental health issues.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in my experience, the only way to figure it out is to change jobs and see if you feel better. And that's (laughs) like a a big undertaking, right? (laughs) scary it certainly is. like jobs change <laughs> job changes are really stressful in and of themselves exactly. right mm-hmm. exactly
2: yes, yes exactly <laughs> a colleague and i wrote about job change and job transition especially in the middle years the the sort of the middle middle years of our work ages 35 to 45 and 50 and sort of how difficult it is to change jobs Part of the processes of change in changing jobs. We went through, uh, we used a very popular model called the stages of change model, and we aligned those somewhat with Super's um, rainbow theory of job change and just discussed how people go about that, uh, those abilities to change, how they go through that process of change. So it's a long process. Yeah. And and it's, it's, it takes a lot. You know, people think, oh, I just decided one day. You know, I always laugh when people talk about when they smoke or something like that. Oh, I just put them down one day. And it's like, well, did you forget all the times that you tried to stop and all the times that you talked about stopping? The when you think about any change, there is so much preparation that goes on before you actually start to behave differently or change. Your actions. There's so much cognitive work and experiential work that goes on that people really take for granted a lot of times. And the same happens on the other side. You know, not all change is positive.
0: Right. <laughs> and we're,
2: y- y'all ask a lot about people leaving the profession and is it, you know, is it a higher rate of people leaving the profession than other professions? And I looked into that a little bit. And there's actually an article published by uh, the um, Bureau of uh, Labor Statistics, and they do acknowledge that veterinarian uh, professions are what we call a bright outlook, <laughs> meaning that, that there's good. more jobs. <laughs> well, there's more jobs than there are people to fill them. Yeah, That's okay. True. <laughs> counselors are the same way. Mental health counselors yes. are the same way. There are many jobs like that, and so is it is it due to people leaving? Is it due to people retiring? Is it due to more opportunity opening up? And it's really a, a sort of a configuration of all those things yeah. is what this article tended to to indicate, that it, it may seem like more people are leaving, but people are dropping out on time, there's more opportunity, and there are people leaving.
0: Oh, you you, know, you can turn on any veterinary podcast or pick up any veterinary magazine, you know, and you'll see at least some reference to their quote, not being enough veterinarians. And so it's interesting to find out that it's it's probably not so much a, a just a mass exodus from the profession as it is lots of factors compounding at once. And then certainly we've got the pandemic where we know that women statistically have been more affected by changes in work due to the pandemic and who are veterinarians, overwhelmingly women of reproductive age, right? So to me, this kind of makes sense. But I will say that my personal bias is that (laughs) there are plenty of openings in veterinary jobs that don't pay well and have horrible benefits and horrible hours. And there are not Mm -hmm. very many openings in veterinary jobs that pay well and have flexible hours and are like maybe not clinical positions. (laughs) I have a a friend who was trying to actually get a non-clinical veterinary technician position filled, and she had so many veterinarians apply for it. Like, they were willing to take a huge pay cut just to, like, get out of clinical practice. So to me, that's very mm-hmm. telling. And my, And again, this is my opinion, not based on research, just based on life experiences that we could fix some of these things by improving the um, environment that those jobs are in, <laughs> and mm. uh, you know. But <laughs> that's my biased opinion.
2: So as I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm also looking at this list of. Job information, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things that comes up is stress tolerance. Yeah, and and they have this worked as as are listed as a work style is stress tolerance. Job requires accepting criticism and dealing calmly and effectively with high stress situations.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. which
2: is a, you know a major factor when you think about working conditions, and that's what you're talking about. So you not only have that, but then you have poor benefits and crowded working environments and the other things that you were talking about in addition to these needing to be patient with high stress
0: right and also needing to be right most of the time not uh because of like an ego thing but because of like a patient staying right. alive thing <laughs> that yes, part is exactly. really stressful
1: <laughs>
2: and, yeah. and then when you look at the need the value need of achievement independence and recognition mm-hmm and so, and I think, J.J., you you talked about this in, in recognition. You walk in the door and they say, oh, you're not a real doctor. And so what does that do to your recognition? I mean, that it, that it just tears away. And then, Lauren, you're talking about the idea of independence. I need to treat this case the way I think I need to treat the case, yet my protocols tell me I've got to treat it this way or my boss says I have to treat it this way.
0: Right, or the owner's and, finances dictate that we treat it some other way too.
2: There, there you go. Yeah. And so, as I start to hear your narratives about your work, I I can plug it in. I begin to plug it into these different values, and I see the start seeing the deficits and the displeasure based on the work values and the work styles and the work demands of the of the work. So it's real interesting to kind of see that and to talk with you all, um, and begin to. And and that's how career counseling starts to work, quite honestly, is you start to assess people from this perspective, from their narrative, and they start to talk about what the stressors are. And the stressors usually are around conflicts in values, conflicts in things that they need that they're not getting from the work
1: environment. Right. So who do you think would benefit most from seeking career counseling?
2: That's a really great question, JJ. career counseling has has traditionally over the last 60 years been focused on undergraduate transition from from high school to undergraduate college transition and sometimes trade schools and and other types of employment however in the last 25 years i told you that we reached out to AARP and and we're trying to help people understand that People do make more career transitions now than in any other time in history. People are changing jobs more often than in any other time in our history. And so, really, anyone that is considering a job change, and if they feel unsure about that, that's a good time to talk about or to contact a career counselor. And the the counseling is generally brief counseling. It's it usually doesn't go on for more than four or five sessions. It is expensive, and it's it's not necessarily available to everybody because of the expense. Yeah, generally not a reimbursed or an insurance kind of thing. Yeah. However, some universities have looked at that, and they allow their alumni to use the career services. So the University of New Mexico was that way. They allowed. Alumni to use career services wow for the for their for their lifetime, yeah, I thought that was a really That's uh, amazing. innovative
0: Great. Yeah. You know,
2: I thought it was really innovative, and um, there are also mental health counselors are trained in career counseling, they may not specialize in that area, but they are trained and can provide those services as well, and so community counseling resources uh, county mental health services, and those kinds of things do have some availability for career counseling. They don't do a lot uh, because people don't know about it. Rehabilitation counseling focuses a lot on rehabilitation disabilities and career counseling. That's Mm -hmm. a major focus area. But my, I guess my view, because I, I study this and I understand it and I've lived it. I mean, I have lived the career transition I've transitioned three times in my life. Three major transitions I've had. Well over 12 jobs I've had, probably 25 or 30 different jobs. Really? But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had a lot of jobs. <laughs> but um uh, the the idea of transitioning, it it is overwhelming at times thinking uh-huh. about making a a career transition.
0: Yeah.
1: Mhm.
2: And so I think it, it's really a good investment for people. I really do think it's an a good investment for people to try to talk with somebody and go through the process and and I mean what you're really trying to do, we go all the way back to nineteen oh seven and Parsons is you're you're attempting to try to understand yourself what it is that your work is lacking in. And it may not be that you have to get a change. You might have to change something about yourself to be able to benefit from the work environment. Again, you may have to reacquaint or reinvigorate yourself. But then again, it could be that you need to change. And and that's really dissatisfaction. Work dissatisfaction is a major uh, area of study, work satisfaction. Uh, There are three or four different theories on work satisfaction and it is it is one of the primary things that people tend to experience over the course of working is dissatisfaction
0: the cost that you mentioned i actually think that it's pretty reasonable especially when you compare it to the cost of the alternative which i'm i'm seeing a lot of recently like career coaches that have that are not like career counselors they're just i'm not sure if they have credentials right like there's quote, life coach credentials that you just like do like a weekend course, kind of a pay for play thing. And they're kind of advertising themselves to the veterinary community as, you know, like I am a consultant. I will help you with a career transition. And I'm sure that it's at least that expensive to do that sort of thing. But for those of us that aren't able to invest that much into a career change cost wise, are there any Resources like self-help resources, or um, maybe inventories that like approach the same level of accuracy that people could take online uh, for free, or anything like that.
2: Actually, there there are many free resources that okay. people can take advantage of. The ONET is probably the the most centralized. Uh, you can take a um, I want to say it's sixty five. Question interest inventory, and uh, it will give you results based on your what we call the RIASEC codes, uh, which is a sort of a work grouping code, like realistic, investigative, artistic, social, enterprising. I'm sitting here looking at veterinarian right now, and it's investigative and realistic are the two uh, primary work codes or work personalities. Uh, that come up for veterinarians as I'm looking here, and the Holland coding system is used. It's integrated into ONET. It's integrated into the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's integrated into just about every assessment that you take. Will give you some kind of reference back to your Holland codes. And generally, what you try to do is take an, an assessment, and it gives you a three-letter code. And the codes are referenced like I'd talked before, realistic, which is people that like to work with their hands, investigative or people that like to understand the world, biology, veterinarians, those kinds of things. Holland looked at at his instruments as personality inventories, so the Holland coding system, if you look at it and you know anything about personality assessment it it's all adjectives, it's descriptive. Terminology. Mm -hmm. It describes a person. And so, and that's exactly how most personality assessments are created. They describe a person trying to describe behavior and predict behavior. And so, work personalities are really Holland's conceptualization. That's what work personalities are. And so, online at ONET, you can get that and you can work through uh, the work personalities Mm -hmm. called the uh, Onet Interest Profiler. There's also another really interesting and kind of fun, really, uh, values survey. You have to do it. You have to download it, and you got to cut up all the little cards. And 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 uh, you can do this printed on paper, and then cut up all the little paper. And it's a values card sort, and you can do that. And there's a scoring that comes with it, and you can then look and have a listing of your prioritized values. And if you look at interests and values, those are two of the three big variables that we look at. And you can actually go into ONET after you've taken those two tests and you can search by values and you can search by interests and you can begin to get lists, those those lists of occupations that align with those values and interests. So that's one way of beginning to to do some of this work on your own. And I mean, you know, intelligent people that have gone through veterinary school or vet tech school or those kinds of things, I mean, y'all are intelligent people and so you can figure these things out pretty easily. When you when you think about someone that is maybe younger or has not had a, a, as a sophisticated job understanding systems the way you all are trained, they those folks would probably benefit more by by getting help by by having someone help guide them, but some of this is really fairly navigable to people that really think about what it is, and having a basic understanding of why you're looking the way you're looking and what you're doing often helps and that's what a counselor can provide is the sort of the theoretical understanding and the experience there there is it, it you're sort of asking me: Is there a book? I, I would liken it to. Can I get a, a a book on dogs and start to do dog surgery on my dog? And <laughs> you're going to say, "Well, no, you're crazy to do that, right?" <laughs>
0: that was not that's not my recommendation. Yeah. <laughs>
2: exactly, and and I'm and I'm not I'm not going to go to that length to say no. You should never do that because that's why these systems are available. Yeah. But the recommendation is you're gonna you're gonna do okay with this. You're probably gonna accelerate your understanding by seeing a counselor and understanding a counselor. But I have I mean I have no uh, compunction about saying get in there and look at these things. A- another really good assessment is the Personal Globe Inventory, and it does much of what. Holland was trying to do but it's updated and it's newer mm-hmm. and so it is um got a few more codes in it it doesn't have just the the 5 resec codes i think it has 7 it also looks at values and one other really important construct that we often forget is prestige in work
0: yeah
2: prestige is very important in that some people need to be more important. They need to have a higher thought of type of job. And other people can work in jobs that are less thought about and less respected. And and that is a very, um, it's, it's very much associated with satisfaction, mm-hmm. the prestige level of the job. And so the Personal Globe Inventory does all of that. It assesses for all of those things. And it, it's a free assessment. Now he is collecting data on that. Terrence Tracy is collecting data on that. So you kind of sign a waiver when you when you take the test that you're willing for him to use your data, but it's all done confidentially. He's not gonna call you, he's not gonna sell your data or anything like that. He's really doing data trying to norm the instrument and make the instrument a better instrument is what he's really trying to do. Cool. He's he's yeah, you know, he's a he's out of Arizona State University. And uh, he's, he's just a really great person to be offering this free service and, and continuing the work of Holland. He worked with Holland and is continuing the work of Holland to try to refine career decision-making and help people make good decisions about career. One of the worst, you know, as we, as we talk about this, one of the yeah, worst things that happens <laughs> for people— is they talk to
0: their peers only? Oh, yeah, guilty. Mm-hmm.
2: And <laughs> peers don't necessarily have insight outside of the culture or the society where they're existing. And it, it it's especially that um, this was noted in um, adolescence first. Okay, that that adolescence in in thinking and making career decisions would would consult with their peers first. And I mean, you got to know, adolescents are not the people to consult with when you're thinking about careers. But but we <laughs> right. took that information because there's just no experience. Yeah. And so we took that information and we began to kind of go forward and we see that talking with peers only is probably not a good strategy. It's a it's a good strategy, but it's if it's the only strategy, you're cheating yourself. It's best to be able to talk outside of your sort of direct peers and, and to get information, to get quality, quality world of work information instead of sort of a, a circumscribed world of work information.
0: That's, I think that's great advice. Thank you for bringing mm-hmm. that up. Sure. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's really solid advice. Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned briefly a card sort. Can you just tell us what, what do you mean by that? What is a card sort?
2: Okay, so there's there's different types of card sorts. So there's personality card sorts, there's values card sorts, there are uh, skills card sorts, interest card sorts. The card sort that's available online is a values card sort. And so what it basically has you do is it gives you, a, a each card has a value listed on it, and it might be something like independence. It might be something like uh, knowledge might be something like resources, uh, money, prestige, all these adjectives and nouns that that create a sense of understanding for us that we're trying to pursue something or that we're trying to make happen in the world. Freedom is a value. Um, education uh, oftentimes is a value. And so in the values card sort, what you're trying to do, you're trying to take this stack, I believe in the work importance locator, I want to say it's 25, 24 value cards, I believe. And you are asked to sort these in five categories from top to bottom, and then from most preferred to least preferred. So you have a matrix is what you wind up with from the least preferred values and the, and then the least preferred of those to the most preferred values and the top rated ones. And you usually wind up, I think it's with five values, if I remember correctly. You have five top values. And from the five top, you can start to do... The searches that I talk about, and you can start looking at uh, different careers that align with or that have those components of values within the careers. So you can do that uh, with values card sorts, and uh, you can look at skills card sorts, and you can look at interest card sorts. Now, the only one that the only ones that are available on Onet are the values card sort the interest inventory is something different it's your traditional sort of inventory where you where you fill out a, a an electronic form and you're answering questions about do you like this kind of activity or this kind of activity it's sort of a yes no forced choice thing and The more activities you like that involve hands and creating things and tangible objects, you're going to be more realistic versus someone that likes ideas or working with people. That's going to be a different experience. Now, there are values or interest card sorts. They tend to cost money, although they're not extremely expensive, quite honestly. You can pay about $30 and get a card sort. And a scoring chart for the card sort from, um, uh, they're called Nodel, K-N-O-W-D-E-L-L, card sorts. And you can type those in, and there's two or three different um, providers that will sell you those online, and they ship them to you. And they're real simple to use. The instructions are easy to use. And that's something that you can certainly do to help you with interests. Values and skills. Now, each one of those would be thirty dollars, so you're looking at ninety or a hundred dollars with the scoring charts as well. So that's a, a. It's not free, but it's certainly less expensive than uh, some of the other types of things.
0: And so, using these assessments and using the card sorts kind of helps each individual person understand their motivations and what's important to them, and then they can use that to select a career that would align best with those values
2: well yeah theoretically theoretically okay (laughs) yeah i I don't want to i don't want to go back to the 1900s to that strict empiricism model where okay i know what your values are i know what your interests are now i can match you with a career because that's really not correct there's much more to humans than a set of scores (laughs) okay and we know we know that just like there's much more to dogs than than a set of, you know, teeth or whatever the case may be that you're looking at. There's much more to an animal than than what you get when you, I don't know, do a probe or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> treat, treat the patient, not the numbers.
2: Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Very good. Great. Okay. I knew you'd come up with a metaphor eventually.
1: Bring it back <laughs> around.
2: Because I don't know much about veterinary <laughs> except what I've been on the receiving end. Okay. <laughs>
1: So the score that you get, does that uh, stay the same or does that change over time?
2: Well, that's a really good question. And people have actually done research on that. Like I said, people research anything. So it's kind of fascinating. (laughs) So one thing I'll say before that, the scores that people often take for interest tests, they dismiss pretty quickly and they forget their scores within two weeks. That's some of our (laughs) research has shown us that that interest testing in and of itself, people forget their scores and they kind of don't understand what they mean outside of about two weeks. They kind of forget all that information. And that's part of the the reason to have a counselor and to engage in counseling is to be able to take that scores and translate that information into you, the person. And that's what's so important is that the scores become a part of who you are and your understanding. Of who you are. So to answer your question, JJ, more directly, if we look at interest scores, interest scores tend to be fairly stable over the lifespan. We have looked at children in early elementary school and later elementary school and found interest to be stable then. We've looked at elementary school to secondary schools, and we found interest to be fairly stable then. And we've looked at interests from early career to late career, and interests generally are fairly stable at that time. Now, that's not to mean that you can't develop new interests, but generally people's interests, they might create new interests and lose lose some interest in there, but they gen, generally tend to be clustered together in specific interest areas. So you think about, well, you know, why would that be? There's so many things to look at. Why would why would interest cluster? And it goes back to sort of what are you good at? What are your aptitudes? Now, we didn't really ever talk about aptitude testing because aptitude testing has sort of fallen out of favor because it's oh. hard to do. Mm.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. It's
2: difficult to do. You have to go somewhere and you have to have tools to aptitude test. It's like old tools like uh, you, you assemble nuts and bolts <laughs> and put them from one board into another pegboard. And then you take them apart, and you're timed when you do that. And what you're looking at is you're looking at dexterity. How, how well do people work with their hands? And that was really needed back in the 1960s and 70s when we did a lot of manufacturing in the United States. We don't do much of that anymore. You go to Pitney Bowes. You know what they do if you want to be a Pitney Bowes rep? You know what Pitney Bowes is, right? The, the mail machine? Okay. okay. The mail machine. They they create mailing machines. Like you you throw your envelope into this machine and it stuffs it full of the letter and it puts the postage on it and it seals it and cool. it's an automatic machine. Handsy. It's just an automatic machine. Well, if you were to, were to go to work for Pitney Bowes and you wanted to be a service rep, within any training or anything, they throw you in a room with a broken machine and say <laughs> fix it. <laughs>
0: Uh, but what okay. they're trying to
2: what they're trying to assess is your mechanical understanding.
0: Oh. Do you get your
2: mechanical understanding?
0: Do you get a cell phone during this test?
2: No. And internet, YouTube, nothing. No, 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 no. No, but,
0: YouTube, okay.
2: no, 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 hmm. no. They just throw you in there and they say fix it. And and there are people that are so gifted mechanically that they can they can see and understand all of the the intricate needs that the machine has in order to do its function. So that's that's a concept of ability. That's a deep concept of ability. Now, I, I would say that a surgeon, you're, you, you've you done surgery. Both of you have either assisted or done surgery. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, a specific set of abilities that you have to have to do surgery. You have to have steady hands. They have to be very steady. You have to have really good eye-hand coordination, and you have to be able to understand uh, sort of, um, what am I trying to say, concepts of where body parts are and what they might look like if they're inflamed versus what they might look like when they're in their more natural state. I mean, you have to be able to understand and have skill to identify all that area, and it's not just through training. You can't train someone that's not good at the piano to be a concert pianist those are genetic and and i don't even know that they're all genetic i think there are oftentimes uh mathematical anomalies i'm i'm getting way outside my area but but th- th- that they're genetic anomalies i mean i i go back to someone like mozart and And I think about this you know six-year-old boy entertaining the crowned heads of Europe at six years old with violin and piano and, and uh, forte piano and those things. And that's an anomaly in some sense, but it was a, a a focused skill in a specific area. So to to get back to J.J.'s question, our genetic predisposition for our skills? drives a lot of what we see as interesting in the world.
0: Oh, yeah. I see that.
2: And then our psychology, layered on top of that, drives what we value, which then drives a lot of what our interest in the world is. So we have both of those kinds of basic parts of us, our our genetic part and then our psychology, that come together to try to drive our interest and uh, uh, and and that is what sort of keeps it stable across the lifetime but we can learn and we can uh develop new interests they they tend to be clustered in specific areas and we tend to <laughs> we tend to go after those interests in very personality driven ways so in other words if you think about the work that you do each one of you does your work differently that's because of your personality, yeah, and your own way of interpreting the values that you have.
0: So interesting.
2: So, so that that JJ, I hope, answers the question a little bit more. They they are mm-hmm. stable, but they're certainly also able to change, and um, but they generally stay. It, it's sort of like you've developed a perception of the world, all right. You've developed a a, a, a magnifying glass of the world, or some rose-colored glasses and that's the way you view the world and it takes concentrated effort in psychotherapy to change those glasses. Now I know I like I'm selling mental health counseling here but well, but that's that's, that's <laughs> one of the metaphors that we use is that that you're really trying to change your perceptions of the world. And that's what really what psychotherapy is about.
0: Well Dr. Stoltz, thank you so much for being willing to talk with us. We really enjoyed yes. our conversation. I think this episode is going to help a lot of people uh, know mm-hmm. more about career counseling, how to seek it out, how to not be nervous about desires that they have to branch out and change. I, I think it's going to be really helpful.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Uh,
2: one resource for seeking counseling services, uh-huh. the National Career Development Association okay, and the National Board of Certified Counselors both have listings of career development specialists.
0: Perfect. Perfect. And they
2: generally provide those in areas where you live. I mean, if you, you can go online and look at those.
0: Okay. Awesome. I'll definitely link those on our social media as well.
2: Great. This has been fun. Thank you all for inviting me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I don't get to talk about this that much, (laughs) except except in class, you know, and then people are a captive audience. That's right. That's nice.
0: This has been nice. (laughs) We enjoyed having you. We enjoyed having you. Absolutely. Great. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com.
1: And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets.
0: And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.